From VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship, this is Episode 5 of Circle of Willis, where neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett and I talk about the nature of human emotion and how misunderstanding emotion may be more consequential than you think. Hey everyone, it's Jim Cohn and this is my podcast, Circle of Willis. Uh, this episode features a conversation with Lisa Feldman Barrett, Distinguished Professor of Psychology at Northeastern University, where she's also a professor of neuroscience in the departments of radiology and psychiatry. Uh, I, started, I started making a list here of her, her various fellowships and awards, and you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of them, so I kind of gave up. Just, uh, just believe me. Now, she's, she, this one is at the top of her game. Lisa is uh, really one of the world's leading theorists of emotion now, of what emotions are. And uh, her, answers, her answers are likely to surprise you a lot. Lisa's work is rooted primarily in psychology and neuroscience, but it borrows liberally from anthropology, behavioral ecology, linguistics, philosophy, and on and on. It's so compelling and fresh that it's been prominently featured along with Lisa herself pretty much all through season three of that, that super popular NPR podcast, Invisibilia, which is all about the invisible forces that control human behavior, and which is just amazingly excellent and very highly recommended by me. So uh, anyway, Lisa and I spoke in Boston shortly after her recent book came out, and, and so we, we talk all about it in this, this recorded conversation. This book, Lisa's book, is called How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. And I, uh, I'm, I'm just going to say it. I really, I think, I think you should go and buy it, like right now, and read it. Look, I'm not getting any money for that. I'm not, there's no secondary gain for me if you purchase Lisa's book. I just love it is all. And I want to share it with my fellow persons of the world. Lisa's book has got everything. It's got a compelling topic, you know, human emotion. It's got a contemporary frame that brings the latest neuroscientific evidence to bear, as well as the latest theoretical views on questions like, what is a brain even for? How do brains even work? Why should, why should any of this matter to us? But Lisa being Lisa, she, she takes it even further. She gets into why psychologists and neuroscientists might have gotten these questions wrong for so long. And that, that puts the science into a cultural and historical perspective, which is, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I don't want to alarm anybody, but science is, after all, a human activity conducted by people. And people do the things that people do, including sometimes favoring strongly held beliefs, even in the face of conflicting evidence. And that, friends, is one of the many reasons that science is so frickin' hard. It can freak you out when the data start telling you something different than what you expect, you know? And Lisa's take on how emotions are made, on what emotions are, let's just say that it isn't intuitive for most of us. But once it clicks, 
Once you get it, it veers pretty quickly into mind-blowing territory. I first encountered Lisa's work shortly after starting graduate school in the mid-1990s. I remember these articles she was writing at the time, challenging in, in the most uncompromising tones the idea that there were these you know, five core sort of basic emotions that were what we call human universals, which is, which is to say that they were shared by all humans in all cultures around the world, that they were in fact independent of culture by virtue of being part of our biological constitution. These emotions were, let's see, they were fear, sadness, joy, anger, that's four, uh, and, and disgust. And, and these basic emotions came with basic emotional facial expressions, stereotypical facial expressions that were more or less understandable by all humans everywhere, by, again, uh, by, by virtue of our innate biology. So, uh, y- you know, Lisa is what we sometimes call detail-oriented. She's a bit of a stickler for, you know, the internal consistency of an empirical argument. And uh, in her survey of the literature on emotion, she started to realize that the dominant theories, this, this theory especially of these sort of basic human universal emotions, just didn't really fit well with the data that people were reporting. And, uh, and anyway, we get into all that in our conversation, and, and really Lisa is much better at talking about it than I am. But I do want to say this. The, the topic of emotion really goes to just about the core of what it is to experience a human life. So, I mean, this stuff matters. Emotion is essential for our survival, for creating our social worlds, for navigating our often uncertain and and demanding life circumstances. But emotion is also largely what our subjective experience is made of in this uh, this one life that any of us is ever going to have. And the topic of emotion raises all kinds of other questions, which is why uh, along the way, Lisa and I talk about things like how the brain is designed to predict our moment-to-moment experiences, how our subjective perception is really a, a blend of these predictions and the feedback we get from our environments, uh, you know, wh- why all of us have to manage our body's metabolic resources like, like little economists, and more, all kinds of stuff, heady stuff. But uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett is here to help us all figure it out, to guide us sort of gently down the counterintuitive path, as it were. So open your minds, people, because here it comes. So I'm conflicted in terms of what I want to talk about, because, (laughs) you know, I've got Lisa Feldman Barrett in the room, and I want to talk about everything that you do <laughs> and i want to talk about your career there's i i think there's real pedagogical value sure. in learning how you sort of grew up but i think the place to start really is to just ask you about this book that's mm-hmm. come out mm-hmm. so tell me about the book well a number of times over the last 10 years or so, I've been approached to write a popular book, which I swear I would never do. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, I because just... <laughs> I'm just too, bi- you know, I'm too, I was just too captivated with the science and I didn't want to take time away. And then in 2013, uh, there was a journalist who was writing a feature piece on me uh-huh. and my lab, my lab's work for Boston Magazine. I and remember that. Yeah. 
She kept asking me. She was fantastic. She asked fantastic questions. She probably dug harder and read more papers, more of my scientific papers than my colleagues had, actually. Yeah. And one thing she kept saying is her editor kept pressing her, why is this important? So we have the wrong theory of emotion. Who cares? Like, why does it matter, you know? Yeah. And so she kept coming back to me and saying, I really want to do this article, but it's only going to fly if you can tell me why it matters. And my first reaction was kind of a knee-jerk. Eat shit. I don't want to tell you. <laughs> yeah, my first reaction was, listen, do we, do, you know, do, we, do we require this of physicists who talk about you know, strings vibrating in 11 dimensions? Right. You know, do, we talk about, do, we, do we require this of, of physicists who talk about the Higgs boson? This was before you know, the evidence yeah. uh, that came out of the Hadron Collider. Or you know, multiverses or any of this other stuff. No, we don't. No. We don't ask them to it's justify just themselves. It's just interesting. Right. So it should be really interesting. Yeah. I how, agree. You know, how is God the, damn it. What is the brain doing yes. and, and what's happening in the body j- during emotion? Why can't we just be interested for science sake? Right. But she really was persistent. And so I thought, all right, I'll, I, I'll grudgingly spend a, you know, a couple of days thinking about it. And when I started to really think about it and do a little bit of reading, I realized actually people are really harmed in many spheres of life by, by using the wrong theory. Of emotion. hmm in politics, in security, in mental health, in physical health. There are a number of examples that I give throughout the book, actually, where having the wrong ideas about how emotions work, what they are, how they work, leads people to make decisions that are really harmful, sometimes financially harmful and sometimes harmful in terms of losing their lives. Um, Whoa. Can can you give me some examples? Yeah, sure. So... One example is that when uh, women present themselves in the emergency room with symptoms of what could be a heart attack, those symptoms are very similar to the symptoms that you experience during anxiety attack. Right. And over That's the age the of classical s- example. Oh, yeah, over the age of 65, more women die from heart attacks than men do. And the reason, one of the reasons why, it's not the only reason, one of the reasons why is that they are routinely sent home because they are misdiagnosed as having anxiety instead of uh, having a full workup and detecting that there's actually a problem with the heart. The women themselves and and the emergency room doctors have a classical view of emotion with the idea that there are very definitive fingerprints for things like anxiety, anxiety and fear, and that these are somehow biologically separate and very distinguishable from physical symptoms of illness. And that combined with the mistaken belief that women are more emotional than men, uh, which is also an interesting um, part of the, the Wait, sort of... they're not? I'm just kidding. Yeah, I know you are. Know. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> leads to to people losing their lives. And before, you know, there are a couple of um, times when I've been interviewed about this, you know, interviewers will say, really? Come on, really? You know, one of the publicists that I've worked on my book, this happened to her mother. This that exact, she was diagnosed with anxiety? She went to an emergency room with symptoms of uh, with heart uh, that were in, like there was an impending uh, heart event about to occur and she was sent home with anxiety and she died holy shit 
You know, you, you think commonly, if you ask lay people about the link, to the extent that lay people are going to know about the link between panic attacks, anxiety attacks, and heart attacks, mm-hmm. they're going to say that the, the problem really is not what you're saying. The problem is that so many people think they're having a heart attack when they're really having an anxiety attack. Sure, you can pick apart any single, you can pick apart any single example that I'm giving you. Mm-hmm. The fact is, though, that what your body, the idea that there is a, an objective physical fingerprint for each emotion and that somehow it is distinguishable in, a, distinguishable in a biological sense from physical symptoms is a myth. And it's a myth. It's a myth. There's, that there, there's that no... There are, e- that there are physiological fingerprints for an emotional state. There is no evidence that there is a single fingerprint for anxiety, well, for like fear. That seems like an important for, qualifier. Right. So, well, that's what, that is what the classical view is, rests upon. And that's what, you know, currently um, industry, technology, technology related industries are spending billions of dollars trying to develop emotion, objective emotion reading technology AI. or, mm-hmm. right. and, um, you know, a space doesn't speak for itself when it comes to emotion. The physical state of your body does not conform to a fingerprint that you can use to diagnose independently of all sorts of other information. Right. So we want, we want a device or we, somebody wants a device that can say a physician wants a device that can say when you come in and your fingertips are cold and your heart is racing, you're having anxiety. Or marketers want a device where they can just look at your face or just take a couple of readings from uh, your peripheral nervous system and then know how you feel. And the classical view has lent credibility to the notion that such fingerprints exist, but they don't. But I'll tell you, the one that really got me, the one that was for me the tipping point for writing this book Uh was actually the training of children diagnosed with autism to read emotion in facial movements. Oh my For gosh. me, that was the one. That, that was the last straw. That was the last straw. So there's all of this research that's being done with children who've been diagnosed with autism. So in autism, there are a number of difficulties that, that these children face, but one of the difficulties is they don't understand social signals. They yeah. have a hard time understanding what physical movements mean. So in a neurotypical brain of the sort that, you know, probably you and I have. Uh-huh. Um, Speak when, for yourself. <laughs> uh, when we see physical movements, like right now, you know, where our heads are moving, our facial muscles are moving, yeah. our body's movements are, you know, we're leaning in or leaning back or what right, have you. Right, right. We are, our brains automatically guess at what the mental... Um, state is that yeah. corresponds to those and we're movements. we're pretty good at it. We're pretty yeah, accurate. Well, I wouldn't. It, I would I, I, yeah, that we, accounts we can, for the fluidity of conversation. We're accurate right? enough. I would accurate say. Enough. Yeah, there's an optimal level of accuracy. If you think about accuracy as coordination between what's actually in your head and my guessing what's in your head, yeah. and we can talk about that later. But so the idea, and it makes sense, right? That then one thing that you could do with these kids is train them to recognize a scowling face as a signal to anger or um, a pouting face as a signal for sadness and so on. And this is based on the assumption that each one of us has a diagnostic expression that we make when we are in an emotional state and that everyone around the world makes these expressions and that we can recognize them 
um, you know, as easily as we can read words on a page. So all you have to do is teach kids to read these facial, to recognize, identify these facial configurations and, um, because they're universal facial expressions. The problem, though, of course, is that these expressions were stipulated by Darwin they're not the only set of stipulated expressions that have ever existed in the history of human of written. They were stipulated. They by were stipulated by. I mean, he said that? these are the ones. These are the ones. These in, are the in ones. The expression of emotion in, in man and animals. Exactly, and then scientists, rather than doing very um, careful studies of people, how people actually move their faces. Um, in everyday life, they adopted these expressions because Darwin said so, and um, <laughs> and we have a whole, and really what these faces are are stereotypes, Western stereotypes for facial expressions of, of emotion. Because in the data that does exist from measuring people's actually measuring people's facial muscle movements, facial EMG, and in a number of studies uh, yeah. that. Um, observe people in everyday life, it becomes really clear that you don't, your face doesn't just conform to a scowl when you're angry. People do all kinds of things in anger, right? They cry in anger. They laugh in the face of anger. They might withdraw in anger. They might look away. They don't always yeah. scowl. And people scowl at times that have nothing to do with anger. Yeah, you know, my I husband, know. It's true. Yeah. So, your, no, what does your husband do? He scowls when he's Tell concentrating. He's, he, yeah, well, so do I. Yeah. Right? So, do you, you ever do that? Yeah, no, I do. Well, sure. I mean, is this, is this related to what is it? Re, uh, resting bitch face? Yes, is that this like, is exactly related is this, to is resting bitch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's lucky. Anyways, point. My point is that with when it, <laughs> so you can train these kids right to recognize these faces. Yeah, and they work really hard to do it because it's hard for them, and they do it. They struggle and they do it. And as a parent of one of these kids, you might be thinking. This is going to really help my kids socially connect with me and right. with other people. Because they're going to be able to read my face and respond appropriately. And so you're full of hope. They're going to hack it. And you right? watch your kids struggle, struggle, struggle to learn these faces. And they do learn them. Uh-huh. And then it generalizes not at all to the real world. So <sighs> it doesn't help at all in the real world. And, but think of yourself as one of these parents. Think You've about, invested all this in, in this Think about the theory. Dis- Think about the disappointment that you would feel after watching your kid for months try to learn to recognize these faces and then realize that it hasn't helped them a bit. And yeah. then how would you feel? You would feel deflated. You would feel demoralized. You would feel tremendous disappointment. And then imagine knowing, learning that actually there's a tremendous amount of science out there which says that, which shows that this would never have worked in the first place it, it would never have have, it shouldn't have worked in the first place i would be beside myself really yeah. and i thought okay you know i just had such empathy um for parents actually of these kids that i just thought well you know what i'm gonna write a book and i'm gonna put the evidence out there and i'm then people can decide for themselves what they think We've talked about a little bit of this stuff before I mean, in, in, in many other contexts, and I've told you already that I sort of grew up in the, in the, the tradition of the, the, the Darwin expressions, right? The, the Ekman uh, stuff, working with Gottman and Levinson and you know, doing all of these kinds of things. I sort of grew up in that environment. And started having a lot of the same kinds of misgivings that you have. I mean, I started reading your work, I think, 
in earnest in the late 90s, probably somewhere around there, because mm-hmm. I was trying to sort of work out some of these observations for myself because I was learning about measurement theory and all these things. But the hardest part for me has always been the expressions. It, for some reason, I always get stuck on the expression. I definitely understand that the establishment of a sort of physiological fingerprint has not been successful. You know, as I've become more of a neuroscientist and gone into the, that direction, we'll talk about that in a second uh, as well. I want to talk about the brain and all of this. You know, that's not been as successful as, as one might have hoped, although we all thought that the amygdala was the seat of fear for a long time. Speak for yourself. <laughs> and, but the expression part, I mean, I just, I, keep, I still sometimes wonder if it's, if it's really a question of sensitivity and specificity, right? So, so if, if we ask the sensitivity question, are we going to catch all instances of anger, for example, with a scowl? But the problem then is specificity, right? So, so it's, I think it's sensitivity and specificity. So I would say, first of all, and let me just be really clear, am I saying that there's no meaning in facial movements? Of course, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not. I'm not. In well, that's any way, a relief. I'm not in any way claiming anything like that. Well, but sometimes. But, but if I went to, if I went to, you know, some place. Well, we have far gone away. to some place far okay. away. Yeah. You know, we've gone. And I'm going like this all the time. You know, baring my teeth and scowling at people. They're gonna not know what, have any idea what I'm t- intending. Correct. They really? might think. Yeah, they might think that you have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Maybe I do. I mean, I <laughs> look. You know, we have sent expeditions to. Um, Tanzania to study the Hadza, who are the really the last hunter-gatherer culture that's been continuously hunting and gathering since the Pleistocene. So right. they are the people who are studying them is is really the best kind of population to study to, to evaluate the classical view of emotion because according to many of those theories, basic emotion theory and evolutionary psychology theories of emotion, um, emotions and their expressions evolved in that context, you know, Mm -hmm. in that cultural context. Mm -hmm. So those people should have done beautifully on the classic kind of paradigm that we use in psychology that people have developed. Where you show pictures and say, tell a story of the picture. Yeah. Or you, you show, well, first what you do is you, you tell a story of uh, an emotion, and then you show two faces or three faces, and you say, say "Pick one? the face," right. and um, or you. Um, th- that's the standard way to do it. And with with more Westernized cultures, um, you um, show a face and you give a set of words, and you say, "Pick the word that matches the face." And there's an interesting story there, I think, about the about the methods and what's going on in those methods and because you know the methods are really tied up with when you see evidence for that supports universality and when you don't but my point here is that even when you use those methods unless you use a very specific manipulation check that is a check on whether or not your subjects understand the western culture the western cultural concept of anger if you do that and you sort of teach well, I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. Let me just say it this way. When you show people those faces, you show people a scowling face and you say, how does this person feel? What's going on for this person? You don't see any evidence that people routinely see scowls as um, anger in uh, the Hadza and also in the Himba who are semi-pastoralists who live in rural Namibia, western Namibia at the Congolese border. So 
or, or Angola border, actually. I'm sorry. It's at the Angola border. So no, you, you actually, it's not the case that, that um, all around the world, you see people see a scowling face and they, they think that you're, they, they think that you're angry. Do they ever pick something that we would typically consider like the opposite, like a smile? I well, mean, I mean, are, well, are there, you, are there, are there degrees? Are there like sort of? Well, sure. So let me just say this. First of all, are there, there are some smiles that they do pick. Yes. Uh-huh. But more routinely, what seems to be universal, more universal anyways, is um, valence, is, the pers- is distinguishing a pleasant from an unpleasant um, expression, an expression that indicates that someone is feeling pleasure versus feeling um, distress. Um, so, that's, so- that's actually harder to disrupt, although it's very easy to confuse people uh, when you start to give them context along with the yeah, faces, sure, sure. right? But these we're now here talking about because they could be happy about a bad thing or unhappy about a good thing, or you know. Well, I think the thing to consider here with these experiments is that you're presenting a face outside of any kind of context, and when this happens, a smile usually is indicative—not always, but most of the time—as something pleasant, uh-huh. and a scowl is usually indicative as something unpleasant. But when you add context in to, so you place a face in context, you can make a smile look negative, and you can make a scowl look positive. How about that? There's but, really, so, there's really so, nice so, evidence, actually. So, at, in zooming out from based on what you've you've just said, sort of in there is is at least the idea that there's a kind of a maybe a kind of a facial signature, if you will, for positivity and negativity. I wouldn't go so far as to say there's a signature. signature. I think a signature is really the wrong way to think about it. That's just, in my book, I talk a lot about essentialism, the idea that there's uh-huh. a one-to-one relationship, a signature for, for any right. kind of mental state. Right. There's right. no signature. What there is, you know, in when you are happy or when you're angry or any other emotion, there is a variety of things that you feel that you do with your face that that your brain is doing each emotion is a category of highly variable instances variability is the norm when it comes to emotion so there are no <laughs> signatures that being said it's very possible that if jim if if i measured you across many different situations in your life i might discover that you have a vocabulary of five expressions that you make for anger right. and maybe right. one for, you know, depending on what and the they, context they is. They could and be maybe, more or less reliable in terms of indicating my inner state. Sure. And maybe I have, you know, three and maybe, you know, your wife has eight and maybe my husband has seven and maybe there's some overlap because we're all North Americans and we've all grown up, you know, relatively speaking in the same culture. But even with people within the same culture, for example, you know, you for, think about your wife. Think about when you first met your wife. Think about how well you read her face, so uh-huh. to speak, when you first met her, and how well you read her face now. There is, we do perceptual learning with people. Sure. We learn. We get lots of feedback, lots of interaction. Yeah, we get, right. We have, first of all, we have a lot of data to work with because yes. we have a lot of interaction. And we usually, if we're close with the person, get some feedback about when we are correct and we are incorrect. Right, right, right. And so, of course, we have tells. Of course, you know, my husband reads me extremely well. Yeah. Um, sometimes he <laughs> is aware. He can predict um, that, for example, I suffer from migraine headaches. Oh. And um, he can usually predict 
when, when, it's, when one's coming when on. When one's coming on before How I even that? feel the aura of it, right? Yeah. And it's because I do actually take on a, a, a sort of a physical demeanor when this happens because I'm starting ah. to feel discomfort, yeah. but I'm not, it's not, I'm not aware of it yet. I'm conscious of it. Obviously I'm consciously feeling it, but I'm not quite aware of it yet, but he's become very sensitive to it. And, um, I, you know, there's one really funny story that I relay in my book about this. It's, it's, um, sort of heretical actually, if you're a woman to sort of say this, but you know, there was one, <laughs> um, a couple of years ago, I guess now seven years ago, um, I was moving, uh, from one university to another, and I was moving my lab, which is a very complicated yeah. uh, procedure, as you know. Yeah. And um, it's not just moving people and boxes, it's also moving hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment and data, which has to be kept secure. Right. And so it's very serious, it's very serious and, and very challenging. Yes. And um, I was under a deadline to, you know, I had two weeks to, to make this whole move with, I was moving more than 20 people, all this stuff. And, uh, there were, sn there was snag after snag after snag. I, I should say, you know, things were, did go kind of relatively smoothly, but when those snags happened, they were really big snags. Uh, right. Uh, and there sorry. was, yeah, well, no, you know, it was relatively, <laughs> relative to other people's yeah. war stories. This is really not so bad, but my point is that, you know, there was a lot going on. Um, I kept my cool through every single one, just dealt with the problems. And then a really big snag hit on a Friday afternoon at five o'clock. I had a grant deadline at 6 p.m. I was supposed to be going on vacation the next day with my family who had been, you know, incredibly patient with me. Right. And then at about 5.45, I'm sorry, 5.50, it was 5, yeah, 5.45, my computer died. I would have Friday. shit my pants. I... I basically sort of sank to the floor in tears, just in tears. And I just sat down and I started to cry. Oh, no. My husband walked oh, in Lisa. and he said, are you premenstrual? <laughs> well, I mean, I tore him a new one. I was like, how dare dare you i just you know i basically exploded at him i was so i was incensed oh, i mean i was shit. i okay dumbass but i need what to say, say that for that three days later um i got my period Wait unexpectedly unexpectedly what right? are you talking about I'm really telling you, yeah so no he totally read it he read it he read it correctly he read it correctly. Jesus. He was able to use his 20-something years of experience of having been with me to know, right, that even Even for, with all of that other stuff happening? I mean, you know... But with all of that other stuff happening, I, I don't normally you completely don't normally lose my... You don't normally lose it that yeah. quite that way. No. No, I normally don't lose it. <laughs> you know, it's so funny to hear... Because my wife has this ability to tell kind of the nature of my upsetness mm -hmm. when I'm upset. She knows whether it's something that she has to be really concerned about or whether it's because I didn't sleep very well yeah, last so night. so my husband is exactly the same way. <laughs> but how did, how did your wife learn that? How did my husband learn that? B through um, a lot of perceptual hard, learning. Hard-won yeah. experience. Right. So each of us has a vocabulary, <laughs> a repertoire, yeah. you know, of what we feel in certain circumstances, and also how we express what we feel in those yeah. circumstances. And our spouses learn that. And we learn that about our children, and we learn that about each other. Yeah. And so all of that learning is what allows us to, you know, very automatically and usually without tremendous effort, 
make guesses about, you know, our brains are guessing uh, about what each other are feeling and what, what, you know, we're going to do next without very much awareness or even consciousness on our part. You know, this is a really important idea. And, and I don't know if, uh, I just want to make sure that anyone listening would can get the implications of this. This is important implications for policy, for AI development, for research, because what you're really suggesting is that although there may not be these sort of broad normative patterns that we can rely on generalizably to everyone who walks through our door, there may be relatively fixed, reliable patterns within individuals right. across time. But think about... Just think about something really simple, like you're in a negotiation. Let's say you're in industry or you're in government and you're in a negotiation with someone who happens to nod their head when they mean no and Uh shake their head when they mean yes. Yeah. That would be slightly problematic. That would until you got to know them. Right. right, and then then the 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 but think what about it, the mistakes the, the ideographic right. but think about story the mistakes, comes to play. Sure, but think of, so. There are two messages here. I think one is that you know in my book I discuss how some fairly large and disastrous errors have been made by assuming that expressions of emotion are universal when they're not. Right. And second of all, the the science really needs a person, some person-specific observation over time, which you use the correct scientific term, which yeah, is ideog- ideographic. Right, ideographic. Yeah. And that one of my concerns about the technology wave of, you know, emotion, uh, you know, the emotion... Re- emotion recognition gear for gamers and for law enforcement and for Yeah, is that teachers. what's going to happen is all of this money and this incredible ingenuity and innovation is going to be directed to trying to find these... Um, diagnostic facial expressions. Um, and then when that, you know, as evidence is continuing to come out that it doesn't work, they don't work to, to do that, that people will throw away all this technology instead of realizing that the real innovation here is the ability to be able to study people in context in their own lives over time. And that this would actually not only provide the marketers more with what they want and the security agencies more with what they want, but it would actually revolutionize the so science. Are you talking with, with Google yet? Can you say? I can say, <laughs> I can say that Google has thus far not contacted me and not, not responded. Yeah. Um, you know, I do get, uh, there are many companies that have contacted me yeah. and they're, you know, they are, they usually take one of two tacks. One is they want to talk uh, about what the science really looks like, not what the hype is, but what right. the science really looks like. Or they want to try to convince me that the hype, that the PR is really right. And my reaction, you know, to the latter is knock yourself out, man. If you want to invest all of that money and time in trying to find the, those stereotypes in people's everyday lives, I'm not saying people never scowl in anger. Of course they do sometimes. The question is how often and how specifically. Right. Um, And so, because, you know, if you wanted to use it as an objective marker of anger, it better be pretty specific and it better be pretty frequent. Otherwise, you're screwed. You know what it reminds me of a little bit is that the, the AI technology on voice recognition dictation, right? So... That technology, to date, as far as I know, as I've read about, 
isn't very good at just capturing anybody's voice. No, you have to train it. You have it. to train it with exactly. your own voice yeah, over exactly. time. And it learns to sort of recognize <laughs> exactly. you. That's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. And so everything, and the reason why is that even a sound like B, it, that the acoustics of that sound, very different if you say bear or bottle, right? To ah, us, the right. B sounds exactly the same in our awareness, yeah. but actually, if you look at the acoustical signature, yeah. it's different. If you do a because, frequency band analysis. Yeah, because or the sound B is actually a heterogeneous category. And and that's so fascinating because part of then the way that we probably process it in our experience is contextual based on other sounds of course, around it. Your brain is built to be multimodal yeah. in its processing. You don't analyze. Um, acoustical signals separately from visual signals, separately from the um, the sensory signals from your body, separate from um, olfaction and taste and so on. You, your brain has systems for knitting those um, sensory signals together, and um, and it's very hard actually yeah. to to derive meaning just from a single. Um, sensory yeah. signal there's you know there's so many things <laughs> there are many things about what you're saying so far in our conversation that are so satisfying for me but but one of them is how much it sort of recapitulates patterns in other literatures yeah. within psychology you know yeah. if you think you know I'm, I'm reminded a little bit of the sort of walter michelle critique of personality or of the way that perception is active not passive exactly you know all of these things exactly. start sort of exactly. piling on exactly. to each exactly. other i mean even something like you know like you, i was talking to a vision scientist the other day and he said well but you know we do experiments all the time where um we just show people you know visual images and they process them independently of other sensory s systems and i said first of all no they don't that's not true <laughs> um so he's like yes i do we're just showing them you know we just show them Excuse images me? and i'm it's like well have you disconnected the brain from the rest of the body of course there are other modalities that are in play that you're just not measuring them yeah, but yeah, people yeah. with eyes who are looking at a screen which has stuff displayed on it also have a body right. that is sending sensory information continuously throughout their whole lives and you know so no even in a unimodal study there is still multimodal information even if you stuck uh, headphones on them so they couldn't hear anything else yeah. even if you plug their nose yeah. so you know there was no olfactory i mean there's still the whole body that's you know connected right so that's the first point and the second point is really careful studies show i just think it's incredibly fascinating that even in primary visual cortex so this is the part of the cortex which is you know um, where information from the sensory world this is the first part of the cortex that receives information from the right, sensory world right, 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 through right. you know from the whole the, homunculus so Picture you know you that. you have light comes in through your retina right, goes along the optic right. nerve up through some subcortical uh, way stations like the superior colliculus the yeah. thalamus to primary visual cortex that structure carries information about auditory signals and it carries information about somatosensory signals nobody's ever checked to see whether it carries information about sensations from the body which we refer to as interoception uh, but there's pretty good i would say not specific evidence but pretty good evidence that's consistent with that view it yeah, hasn't been tested i think kind of in, in cuneal kind of activations well, there's actually, mod modulating all there's that, actually so. a whole network who's res that's yeah. responsible for integrating 
but I'm talking about now the primary sensory yeah, regions yeah, no, right. carry yeah. information about the other senses. Yeah, that's become something that's very interesting to it's very us cool. in, our, in our lab. It's super, yeah, super, super cool. cool. Yeah. But you also, uh, we want to get back to the body a little bit, sort of embodied uh, sort of understanding of the world, because that's that's a nice segue into another aspect that was, when I was first reading your work, was very confusing to me, because I had grown accustomed to uh, a, a reading of William James that said that suggested to me that these emotional states that we experience should have a specific bodily signature that, that I, I drew from William James as but as me, a sort of theoretical yeah. statement that okay. said but let me ask you a question seriously okay I'm asking you an honest question uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna give you an honest answer did you actually read William no James? not until not until uh 2002 or 2003 or so after I'd been, can I give you an extra honest answer? After I'd cited William James on this, this, this topic in, in, in some early papers. I mean, you know, thinking about the, the, the idea of a, of a neural, I mean, I, I don't know if you know this, but I, I, in 2000, I published a 2001, I published a, a facial feedback study that worked beautifully, by the way, it worked, I mean, beyond expectations and we've replicated it uh, several times. And drawing a little bit on William James, drawing obviously on, on Paul Ekman and... and, and uh, but, it, well, let me just say that facial feedback could still work with a Jamesian view. It's just the Jamesian view is somewhat different from his at what he actually wrote, as I'm sure you discovered. Yeah. So, so what, what did I get wrong? So let me just say that I have a whole chapter in my book where... I talk about Darwin and how Darwin has been misquoted again uh-huh. and again and uh-huh. again from, you know, the expression of the emotions in men and animals. Um, I talk a little bit about William James. Um, you know, I could, I could have written a whole book, really, about how great scientists have been misquoted. But here I only picked a couple, and I talked a little bit about how it could be um, that we could so misunderstand what um, these great scientists said. And James, I think, is a really interesting example because James has been quoted, in fact, many textbooks also describe William James as having said that there is one bodily pattern for each emotion, for yeah, anger, emotion for sadness, experience for, in, for anger, has, for sadness, for fear. You're experiencing the state of your body is what you're experiencing. Yeah, so that your perception of your body is the experience of emotion, is yeah. emotion, yeah. Um, and that there's one pattern for each emotion. But here's the thing. William James actually said that there's one bodily state for every instance of emotion that you feel. So Every when he said, when he, he wasn't talking about types of emotion or categories of emotion. He was talking about instances or what philosophers would call tokens. What James was saying was that when you feel angry um, because someone, you know, uh, blocked your goals, or if you feel angry because you didn't get something you deserved, or if you were angry at your child, or if you're angry you know, for whatever reason, that each in each instance where you feel something, that anger feels different, you will have a different bodily state. Yeah. So when you are, and he actually has beautiful examples of this, but the idea of um, being afraid of a bear versus being afraid yeah. that you'll lose your lover yeah. versus being afraid, uh, <laughs> you know, that each of these fears is an instance that isn't different from the other. You know, he has this great quote where he says, 
um, anger doesn't exist in the entative sense, which means it's not an entity. It's not a that thing a with an essence. Yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah. And so what, so how could it be that, and he goes on and on about how really idiotic it would be to assume that each emotion category has its own pattern when it's so clear that there's all this variability, uh, even within a single category. So how can it be that William James could be quoted as, and not only quoted, but that, you know, decades, almost half a century of science could uh, be dictated by the exact opposite of what he said. You know, he's quoted as saying the exact opposite of what he actually said. In one context, but in the other context, he is saying that you should have this sort of bodily state that's, that's well, informing your... So if you already well, buy the no, story... No, no, but listen, listen, listen. No one's ever saying that your body's doing random things, <laughs> right? Your body is... It, no, that each instance has its own physical comportment. Yeah. But here's the thing. There was someone at that time who said that uh, each f- category has its own bodily pattern. That was Carl Lange. Uh-huh, right. So this whoever... Where James Lang The James Lang theory is like a Frankenstein theory. Yeah. It's, it, it's like taking two theories that on the surface look the same, but in the details are saying the opposite thing and putting them together. So anyone who cites the James Lang theory of emotion has not read William James. Woo, Wow. And so, not only that, we, I actually go back into the history a little bit and I show who actually made that mistake first and why did they make it and what does it have to do with our deep beliefs about human nature that w- would allow us to not only make this mistake, but actually perpetuate it in almost a century worth of science. <laughs> this makes me a little nervous. You make me a little nervous. I'm a little... Are get, you nervous or are you interested and I'm, enthusiastic? Well, I think both, right? Mm. And there we go. But isn't the brain and the study of the brain going to save us from all of this stuff? Because once, we, once we're able to really look at the functioning brain and get really fine-grained at the level of what's controlling the body... Well, let me even back up a little bit from that. When, when, when I think about the diversity of bodily responses, you and I have talked about this before, it's that diversity is probably accounted for by the fact that these different instances of anger don't only have anger per se to do as a thing to do, they have problems to solve in the environment, right? In the environment, these different, these different versions of anger entail different demands on you Absolutely. and your body. This and is, well, you know, he, so, you know, think about what Obrist said. So this is a great physiologist in the 19, uh, I guess the 60s through the 80s, right? His um, point, it was an excellent point, was that, the physical state of your body corresponds to either what action you are taking or what action you are about to take. Uh-huh. So right. when you shout in anger, when you smile in anger, when you sit quietly and seethe in anger, in each case, your body is doing something different. The physical systems of your body are in a different state because your actions are different. Right, right. I think that's such an important thing. So the question then becomes, how is the brain, with, in, in combination with the body, creating these incredibly contextualized, highly variable instances of anger, let's say? How does it do that? And how is it that you as the perceiver are able to identify in other people 
these highly variable instances, all as anger. That's the real mystery. That's the real question. And what I do in the book is I explain how. How is the brain able to do this? Um, and um, it's not just a brain by itself. You know, no, it's, it's a brain. A body. It's a body, but it's also a brain and a body in the context of other brains and bodies, right? Right. Of course. I mean, you don't have to tell me. I mean, this is my whole research program. But the, the, exactly. it's, a, it's a brain that's sort of trying to anticipate what's going to happen exactly and moving a body exactly exactly and it turns out that if you look at research on anatomy research on physiology research on signal processing electrical signal processing because you know neurons actually have an electrical aspect to them if you look at all of that evidence having nothing to do with emotion just the evidence itself what you see is that the brain actually is wired to predict and it is wired to predict the body. And everything else that you do, that you feel, that you see, that you hear, is based on your brain's predictions about what the body needs to do. Right. And then feedback about how well it's done it. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you that I'm an inherently skeptical person, as you know. I mean, we've known each other for a long yeah, time, right? Yeah, yeah. So I don't believe anything. I sometimes don't even <laughs> believe my own data, right? So the thing for me that was so compelling, and I felt like it was okay for me to write this book, um, was that um, do we know everything about how the brain predicts? No, absolutely not. Are there still some really interesting and important questions to be answered? Yes, absolutely there is. But the fact that you have... All of these different literatures, anatomy, signal processing, physiology, I could go on. Yeah. And the fact, brain imaging. Exercise and, physiology. No, sure, exactly. No, and the thing is that, and you keep coming across these ideas yeah. again and again and yep. again. And they don't know each other, these literatures. And they have different names. They have different there's, names. There's free energy. There's, you know, Bayesian yeah. brain hypothesis. Yeah. There's predictive yeah. coding. Yeah. And yeah. It goes, yeah. And so I was just reading, for example, these really nice papers by a neuroscientist uh, named Danielle Bassett, who's at Penn, at University of Pennsylvania. And she's doing connectomics work. She's a physicist doing connectomics work. So she's studying the connections between neurons in the brain. And her evidence, which she doesn't connect it to prediction. She doesn't, she, she doesn't do that. But when you read the evidence, you're like, oh my God, this totally fits. <laughs> uh, and so, I was just at a conference a couple of uh, days ago in Pittsburgh. Um, Pete Gineris and th- th- that crew uh-huh, would uh-huh. Fa- do, do fantastic work in, in health physiology. And sure enough, you know, there's the evidence. We call it, we, yeah. So it's very, very, so do we know everything? No. Do we know enough to be able to say the brain is not a reactive organ? It's a predictive organ. Your brain is using past experience to guess at the immediate future, which eventually becomes your present. Mm. Do we know that this is really happening? And I think the answer is we do. And the understanding how the brain makes these guesses is the key to understanding how emotions are made, and not just emotions, but really every thought, every, every memory, every action that you take, every perception that you have. The key is to understanding the brain's predictive dynamics. And its and its ability to flexibly solve problems that right. it perceives right. in the so environment. Right. So the really cool thing about a brain, as you know, yeah, is that brains are able to take bits and pieces of past experience 
and combine them in brand new ways. Yeah. In neuroscience, we call this generativity, right? Yeah. We have generative yeah. brains. Yeah. So the idea is that our brain is running a generative internal model. It's using the past to predict the immediate future. Does it make one prediction at a time? No, it makes whole populations of predictions at a time. It's making tons of guesses. Yeah. And then one of those guesses, or some small number, um, will be uh, confirmed uh, or corrected by the evidence from uh, the outside world and from your body. Now, here's the really cool thing, which I talk about in my book. What's a concept? Yeah. In cognitive science, a concept is a population of representations that are similar for some purpose. So a category is a, is a collection of instances that are similar for some purpose. They don't have to necessarily look the same or smell the same or sound the same. They have to have the same function. Right. Okay. Right. right. Um, and a concept is a population of those things. So when the brain is generating a population of predictions about impending sensory it's creating concepts it's creating concepts Shit. so your brain i never thought of it in those terms right so that that's, was super helpful for me so thank you and because when the brain is anticipating sensory inputs in the next moment so that it tries to guess what to do about them it's not asking what are these what are these sensations it's asking what are these sensations like and, and relative to my past experience and so what it does is it generates concepts on the fly so when I ask you, what's the concept of a bird, or let's, what's the concept of a bird, you might give me a list of features, right? That's mm -hmm. because you're right then. It's not like you're reading off some static uh, representation that you have of a bird. You're generating an instance, and you're telling me what the, right? So, But if I say, what's, um, what are the properties of a bird, and you and I were out in a park, uh, you would say, you know, probably the properties that a robin has, maybe, or a sparrow. Uh -huh. But yeah, if we were cue you in that yeah, direction. But if you were hungry and we were in a restaurant and you said and I said, What are the properties of a bird? Yeah. You might say, It Chicken. roasts well. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So um, so the idea that your brain is generating it's using past experience to generate predictions, concepts as guesses about what's going to happen next for the purposes of regulating your body. Um, and uh, because, you know, your brain starts to prepare your body for action before uh, it needs to make those actions. And it's, so it's preparing a bunch of actions and then it's waiting for information from the world and from your own internal body to know which, which action to take. Um, and your experiences are a consequence of that. So think about it for a minute. In our normal way of thinking about things, we think that there's a stimulus that we experience which causes a reaction. But instead what's happening is based on the present moment right now, your brain is making a guess about what actions it needs to take next. And based on that, you have perceptions. Yeah. So perception follows action. It doesn't precede it. Because it combines prediction right. and feedback. Correct. Yeah. The stimulus... What we've always called the stimulus is the feedback. Yeah. It's the, <laughs> right? That's absolutely right. Right. That's absolutely true. It's tough to keep in mind. Yeah, but it's... But it's important. It's tough to keep in mind, but it's super powerful. Yes. And I have to tell you that the, you know, my book so far has done very well. Good. 
Congratulations. And I've got, and I've got no, but I'm not, I'm not, thank you. But I'm not actually saying <laughs> it to, 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 to brag. I'm, I'm making a point that, yeah. that I get emails almost on, uh, well, certainly on a weekly basis and sometimes on a daily basis um, from people telling me that this book has changed their life. Really? The thing that they find really empowering is understanding that they have a predicting brain. Ah, yeah. It Super explains important. to them yeah. not only some of the feelings and thoughts that they have, but it also, they understand that, that because your brain is predictive, your horizon of control over your own mental life is broadened quite significantly. And in the book, I talk about ways in which this control is broadened and how you can be more effective as an architect of your own experience now that you know uh, how the brain predicts. Does it mean that you can just snap your fingers and change how you feel in an instant? No, you can't. You never can. Right. Um, does it mean that uh, it will be easy for you now to uh, regulate your thoughts or feelings? Um, no, it's never easy, actually. But you do have many more options um, to architecting your own life than you might have thought. And I think that's the thing that people find powerful. They find it empowering and inspiring enough um, that they uh, that they write me emails about it. You know, you know. you're reminding me again of the, the sort of the way in which what you're speaking about from a conceptual point of view is generalizable. And that is in evolutionary approaches to talking about emotion or behavioral behavior generally. And one of the big influences on me in the last 10 years has been the discovery of behavioral ecology as a field and as an, an alternative in terms of evolutionary thinking to evolutionary psychology. So absolutely right. And in this book, I actually also talk about how this view, which I have crafted, um, first of all, you know, I can't claim it's mine. I'm really of course, I, I think I've added some innovations, oh, but, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. but, but no I'm, question, I'm knitting together. You've been together, at the center of it for a long but I'm time. Knitting, I'm knitting together a lot of ideas from a lot of people, but the point is that it's very consistent with evolutionary biology. It's yes. very consistent with actually Darwin's On the Origin of Species. So one of the things I talk about is how, you know, the classical view, uh, you know, basic emotion view, some appraisal views for those listeners who know something about emotion, is very the views that are very consistent with um, Darwin's um, the experience of the emotions in man and animals are actually inconsistent uh, with on the origin of species because Darwin actually contradicted himself uh, <laughs> in in the two books right the view that I've put forward the theory that I've put forward and I should say when I say the word theory here I don't mean the ideas I mean the ideas that are backed up by tremendous amounts of evidence I'm using theory in a technical yeah, yeah, sense yeah. is very consistent with Darwin's on the origin of species. It's specific with a number of conceptual innovations that he introduced in that book that don't appear actually. Because it's in... adaptationist. Exactly. Right. Exactly. It's, it's, it's very consistent. It's very consistent with um, with behavioral ecology. Yeah. And I talk a lot about about how this is the case and why the average person should care that this yeah. is the case, yeah, 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 yeah. really. Because yeah. because we're, 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 what's probably not going on and we can this might get us into the brain a little bit if we have time to do that but is is that we have evolutionarily derived modules that are just waiting for the on button button yeah, to be pushed yeah right, right. so right? You know, we're much more adaptable than that and flexible than yeah, that and we, so we we are our design 
is for flexibility. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So um, our design is not only for flexibility, though. It's for sure. That's necessary. But actually, our brains are designed for complexity. Uh-huh. And what that okay. means is not just like, wow, this is super compl- complex, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It, complexity right. is the idea that your brain is a single structure of neurons, Yeah. right? Can take on a huge number of different states. So it's a huge information-bearing structure, And not only that, but it's information gaining. It's information Uh generating because it can combine the past in uh, elements of the past in novel, uh, generative new ways, right? Yeah, yeah, But absolutely. So I should say too that the idea that your brain is a is a, a bunch of mental organs, each of which can be flipped on or off and pass information to each other, like uh, you know, like in a relay race. Yeah, right. Um, so you have a stimulus, <laughs> exactly. and that's perception, and then passes information yeah. to you know cognition. The, I, call we, it, I call it the the billiard ball model. Yeah, yeah. Or we yeah. call it in my lab, we call it blobology. Um, <laughs> the idea that um, that your brain is a bunch of mental organs is is false anatomically, and also it, it, that kind of a brain is too metabolically expensive. I like would you, say so. You just I would, can't. I would guess so. I mean, so. one of the major constraints on it's brain... It's not efficient, ever, for sure. No, exactly. But one of the major... one. Of, this is, to me, was a really cool thing to discover, that one of the major, major constraints on brain evolution is metabolic efficiency. God, totally. Right. And this is also very ecological. This is... Because yeah. the, the organism has to manage its resources exactly. and resources are always flying out yes. the door flying out exactly. the door exactly so a lot i don't know if you remember this but a number of years ago you and i had a conversation about using economics as a model for discussing the brain and Absolutely. the nervous system right yeah, that, I do. that the, the way to think about it and this is something i talk about in my book we, we have technical terms for these things right like yeah. allostasis right, and so on right. but exactly. but the but the way that i talk about it now is to say something like this, which I think you'll recognize from our prior discussions, right? That um, you think about your brain as the financial office of a company. And just like a financial office, just like a company has lots of different branches that it, and it has to kind of balance its um, expenditures and its revenue, you know, revenues, your brain has to do the same thing. So your brain is kind of running a budget for your body and it's making decisions about what to expend right? Yeah. In order to get revenues. What do we call that? We call that decision-making. We call that motivation. We call that reward. Completely. Right. But it's always predictive. And sometimes it's predictive in the instance. Like I predict, my brain may predict that if I um, smile at you right now, you know, that you'll smile back. There's a kind of, you know, I'll get a shot of um, opioids, you know, uh, or oxytocin, (laughs) which will help opioids if I'm lucky, and then (laughs) that will be a revenue. But sometimes our decisions are over longer terms, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're going to make investments now, you're going to expend, right? So you're going to maybe even let your body budget go into the red a little in order to get a bigger payoff later. And we need certain neurochemicals to do that, right? Like serotonin. And if we don't have enough, we can't really do it. And, you know, in economics, they talk about this as um, temporal discounting. But this is essentially what what the brain is doing. It's always running a budget. And we do allow our budgets to get into the red sometimes. Sometimes, because you have to. Because you have to. Um, But the expectation is that you'll get the revenues uh, correspondingly because your brain, I always tell my husband this when he, you know, 
complains I've spent too much money on shoes, I say, my brain is not metabolically frugalist. <laughs> I am... I am, uh, I am not, you know, um, I'm frugal. I'm actually, my brain is very frugal. Um, but your brain actually is really frugal. This is the reason why you don't learn everything. You, you can't predict everything about uh, the current situation. And your brain doesn't learn everything that you haven't predicted, right? So yeah. it doesn't, it can't pay attention to everything because that's metabolically frivolous. It's only going to learn the things that it predicts will be relevant for the body budget in the next, in the future. Yeah. One, one of the most exciting things I discovered when I started reading in, in the behavioral ecology literature was the idea of the surplus, yeah. that, that biological organisms universally are designed yeah. to generate surpluses. Yeah, yeah. Even single-cell organisms. I know, it's yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, but correspondingly, when your body budget gets in the red, if it gets too far in the red, or it's been in the red for too long, your brain will start to treat your body like it's sick. Right. Your immune You'll go system... Into your immune system right. gets yeah. involved, and then you really, if it goes on for long enough, you actually really will get sick. Yeah. This is why, though, that many of the physical symptoms, the physical sensations of illness are similar to the physical sensations of mood disorders, because they are similar. At a physical level, they're similar. Yeah. Their meaning isn't similar, necessarily, right. Right. or it might be. I mean, we, that's an open question. Um, but, the, but the physical properties of the sensations are the same. So interesting. You know, one of the things that I love about where you've gone with all of this stuff is that I think early on when I was reading your work in the 90s and discussing it with people, there was this, there was this sort of idea that you were sort of anti-biology, that you were like, you know, that this sort of social constructivism was kind of a, a quasi-political view that was, that was sort of a response to the geneticization of, of things in, in psychology or the biologizing of things. And, and, and you haven't, you have proved that, you've laid that to rest. This is, you're, you've, I really like the way, and I think it's been important for you to have dug in so much in with the biology and really respect the the true nature of the biology the 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 brain and the biology and the and what the biological systems are for yeah. well thank how you how they do that stuff i will say this that um there's a stereotype you know that it, and and i think it for a long time the stereotype was probably reasonable that the classical view was citing an evolutionary view. It was, I think it's a ro the wrong evolutionary view. It's uh -huh. not Darwin's great innovations in On the Origin of Species, but his more essentialist ideas yeah, that yeah, are more yeah. Lamarckian. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, yeah. Um, but nonetheless, they labeled themselves as an evolutionary view. They pointed to, you know, uh, what we now know to be a misunderstanding of William they James. They asserted themselves as the real scientists. Yeah, as the real scientists. And then construction was always social construction. It's Foucault or, and, or, and Derrida. Or, you know, or psychological like construction, yeah. which, which sort of was seen to ignore biology. And I think what this book does is it, first of all, it integrates natural constructivism, which is an approach to science, which integrates neuroconstruction, psychological construction, social construction, in a way that shows the biology of meaning making. This book fundamentally is really about the biology and the evolutionary significance of the biology of meaning making. It's about the, 
the physiological, you know, biological, not so much genetics. I do talk a little bit about genetics, but, you know, I, I the book is already 400 yeah, pages. Yeah, like, yeah, you, yeah. you know, can't that, do it all. That, you can't do it all. But that is actually, I have a lot to say about, about genetics. It's yeah. just, I didn't, my editor was like, enough already. <laughs> enough. <laughs> um, about the biological architecture that allows the brain to construct and not just construct immediate experiences or direct action. But also, what is the biology of social construction? How yeah. it, what is, happens to a little infant brain? You know, a little infant brain is not a miniature adult brain. It's a little brain that's born waiting for wiring like instructions. Waiting, waiting, to, for, yeah. waiting for wiring instructions uh-huh. on how to wire itself right. to its social, to its physical and its social circumstances. And so what does that mean, actually, the biology of that? What does that mean for making comments about cultural variation or understanding um, how all of the phenomena that social constructivists, not all of it, but some of it um, might be understood in biological terms. So I will tell you that one of, some of my most gratifying moments with this book are where sociologists and anthropologists come up to me and say, y- you've, just, you've just outlined a pl- the first plausible biological framework for understanding how construction works. And uh, my most frustrating moments are when, uh, you know, like on Amazon, for example, most of the reviews are are very positive, but there are a couple, you know, like one or two star reviews. And these folks say, oh, this is just another, you know, social construction book. And I'm thinking, these people haven't read past the introduction, I think, because there are several chapters plus an appendix, several appendices, 900 plus endnotes, and then almost a thousand web notes yeah. um, about the biology that undergirds any constructivist approach. Well, I, I tell you, I am so, I feel so lucky that somewhere in like 2000, maybe it's 1999 even, when I, I can't remember when I first met you, it was at a conference. Yeah, right. That's and, right. In, and, in and, Arizona. And we were both, what I discovered, I couldn't believe it because I had grown up in this completely different set of assumptions about what emotion was and about the physiology of emotion and the neuroscience of emotion. And I saw you as being in this utterly different camp. And I remember discovering at that conference that we thought very similarly about things and also learning that you were really thinking hard about measurement and measurement models and and the assumptions under different measurement models. And having that moment, this is part of why I'm doing these, because I had this moment where we talked. I remember we 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 sat down. We went. We had to go to another room because we were really talking a lot about uh, what, what I would later call the emergent variable model. What you what, what Bolin and Lennox and you call called it with the effects model. I, I have to make it more concrete somehow. I can't deal with abstract terms. Well, we've been, we've been trying to figure out how to do that. You and I and yeah. other people for like I don't know since we talked about it all exactly those years ago, right? almost twenty years. Yeah. Yeah, but what a generative, exciting conversation. Yeah. And that's when I really started like it like it was like a it was like a walking around and seeing your work from a different perspective and then pulling on the thread little by little, reading more and more of it and thinking, oh yeah, I gotta read this stuff. I gotta know this stuff. And also realizing that I had the training and the materials to see what you were talking about already. I just had a worldview that was keeping it sort of blurry and out of view. Well, it's so interesting that you say that. First of all, it's, I, you know, I'm smiling as you're talking because <laughs> I remember that. I remember very vividly that, yeah. those, that set of interactions. <laughs> uh, and then when we reconnected a number of years later when I came to Virginia yeah, to, to give right. a talk. And so 
um, a meeting of the minds is so um, so satisfying uh, in science, particularly when you're talking to someone, you know, on the other side of some debate, right? Right. That you feel like you've right. achieved some mutual understanding. So it's very gratifying. Yeah. But, you know, what I... One of the things I talk about in the book is why... Thinking about why it is that the evidence has been there all along that the classical view is 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 seriously in doubt, but we've really clung to it. So at every era, in every era where people have written about this classical view, there's always been evidence, whatever counted as evidence in that era, <laughs> right, right. That, um, that the view is wrong, but yet the view has persisted across thousands of years. Uh, I'm not, this is not hyperbole. This is, you know, actual, this is actual fact from the written record. Why would it be the case? And I think the answer is that the classical view is a theory of human nature. It's a particular theory of human nature that we get from ancient Greece that we've tattooed onto the brain, you know, um, McLean's triune brain, which we know to be, I mean, evolutionary biologists have known for a hundred years that that view is false, but yet it still uh, persists in almost... It's even platonic. It's like... Oh, but it exists and it's and it lurks in all of psychological theory. You know, um, uh, you know the idea that... Um, Cognition regulates emotion, the idea that we have system one and system two, the idea that we have an ego and an id, uh, the idea that we have any dual process theory of any sort in psychology is also a, a, a remnant of this, this particular view of human wow. nature. And it's a view of human nature, which is, you know, really culturally bound and not supported by the architecture of the nervous system. So... And I talk a lot about this in particular chapters in the book because I think it's uh, important not just for understanding emotion, but it's, under, it's important for understanding the law, uh-huh. you know, that it's embedded in our view of the law. It's Free embedded and... in our view of illness and treatment for illness, um, physical versus mental illness. The idea that your mind and that your mind derives from your body is not a mystical statement. It is a biologically verifiable statement. You can actually point to the systems that um, uh, where the mind is constituted out of not solely, but partially information from the body. Yeah. And, but our particular Western view of human nature um, is really limited you know, how we do science of the mind and also our application of that science. And so one of the things that I take on in the book, particularly in the final chapter, is instead of starting with um, mental categories that were bestowed to us by the ancient Greeks and asking where do we find these in the brain? So where does attention live in the brain? Where does memory live in the brain? Where does anger live in the brain? Let's start with the structure and function of the nervous system and ask what kind of human minds can a structure like this this make make interesting and maybe our theory of human nature should be adjusted uh, instead of being the driver lisa feldman barrett thank you so much for talking with me this was this was fabulous my pleasure thank you so much for having me on your podcast (laughs) all right okay that's it i am feeling really lucky 
right now that I get to do stuff like that. Just want everyone to know that my luck has not gone unnoticed. Thanks to my friend Lisa Feldman Barrett for taking a little time out of her very busy schedule to just talk with me and for for maintaining that laser focus that she does on on the topic of emotion. Whew, that was something. Folks, you might be thinking at this point, you know, well, my mind is blown and I want to learn more about this stuff or something like that. So I'm going to mention Lisa's book one more time before we close. It's called How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain, and it's from it's from Houghton Mifflin, Houghton, Houghton Mifflin. I think it's Houghton Mifflin Press. I don't really know how to pronounce that. But anyway, it's, it's already out there in bookstores all over the place. So go get it, okay? And uh, I also want to say the music on Circle of Willis is written by Tom Stouffer and Gene Woolley and performed by their band, The New Drakes. For information on how to purchase their music, check out the About page at circleofwillis.com. Uh, and don't don't forget that Circle of Willis is brought to you by VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia. And uh, and that Circle of Willis is a member of the Teach FM network. You can find out more about that if you want at teej.fm. Uh, also, if you like this podcast, how about giving us a little review at iTunes and letting us know how we're doing? It is very easy, super easy. And we like it. Or you can send us an email by going to circleofwillispodcast.com and clicking on the contact tab. In any case, I'll see you all at episode six, where I talk with social neuroscientist demigod John Cassiopo of the University of Chicago about just about everything, including how science ought to be done and why it's so important to have friends. Until then, bye-bye. Wasting